from the American Exception Podcast. I'm Aaron Good, and today I'm joined by two distinguished guests, Lawrence Wilkerson and Peter Kuznick. Lawrence Wilkerson is a retired U.S. Army colonel, former chief of staff to U.S. Secretary of State Colin Powell, and current distinguished adjunct professor of government and public policy at the College of William and Mary. Peter Kuznick is professor of history and director of the Nuclear Studies Institute at American University. He has written numerous books and articles. Perhaps most notably, he is, along with Oliver Stone, the co-creator of The Untold History of the United States. The Untold History of the United States is a 12-part documentary series that first played on Showtime, and there's also an excellent book version, now in its second edition, which everyone should own. We're going to be talking about the war in Ukraine in the context of the evaporating unipolar moment for the USA. Professor Larry Wilkerson, thank you for joining us today. Good to be with you. And Professor Peter Kuznick, it's great to have you with us as well. Hi, Aaron. Good to be with you. So everybody knows about this story by now, and I figured that uh, Professor Larry Wilkerson, you're the best person to ask about this. I really want to know your reaction. Um, What the other day the former president said, the decision of one man to launch a wholly unjustified and brutal invasion of Iraq, I mean of Ukraine. Uh, Since you were in the Bush administration as they made the case for the Iraq war, what did you think when you heard this uh, astounding gaffe or Freudian slip? Uh, what was what was going through your mind when you when you heard this? Justice finally arrives from the president's own lips. <laughs> uh, he's the only, as far as I know, reading memoirs and papers and such. He's the only one that even showed any glimmer of contrition uh, in Warren' decision. I think was the name of his book. Uh, he said if he'd known what he knew today, then when he wrote the book some years well afterward, he never launched the invasion. Uh, well, <laughs> you know, that's at least that's saying something. I never heard anything like that from Cheney, of course, or Rumsfeld or Condi Rice, for that matter. Never heard anything from any of that crew. So at least he he showed a little bit. And uh, was it Freudian? Probably. Aaron, he's not the first statesman to inadvertently tell the truth. I think back to George W. Bush in 2004 when he said, I quote, our enemies are innovative and resourceful and so are we. They never stop thinking about new ways to harm our country and our people and neither do we. (laughs) Right. I've never heard anything so that was so perfect in on two counts, on two levels, what Bush did, because first of all, he's really highlighting his own guilt. Of a, of a terrible crime. And secondly, he is belying the propaganda narrative that has been put out about, you know, the Ukraine war versus the United States. Like it, it was just really astounding to me, but a more uh, serious issue 
which I know uh, is on everybody's minds, but especially uh, the two of you gentlemen, uh, because you're both versed in this, is this issue, this nuclear issue. So Bush it's, is almost a comical character in a way at this point, but this nuclear issue is very, very serious. Uh, Peter, what do you see as the nuclear risks at this moment? And uh, what, what should what should we be thinking about here? Uh, and what should our leaders be doing to uh, address the peril that we're in uh, as a result of you know, actions of, uh, over many, many years have brought us to this point? What is what what is happening? The nuclear risk is growing. Uh, we're closer to a nuclear war now than we've been at any time since 1962. Uh, and you look at the direction the world is going. Everybody's modernizing. There are nine nuclear powers. They're all modernizing their nuclear arsenals, making them more efficient, more usable, and more lethal. Uh, you've got China, which is tripling the size of its nuclear arsenal. China has been really the poster boy for um, poster country for reason in when it came to nuclear arms, rejecting first first use, uh, limiting the size of its arsenal two hundred to three hundred weapons. But now China is going to have a plans to have a thousand nuclear weapons by the end of the decade. Britain has announced it's going to be increasing its nuclear arsenal by 40%. The United States is spending $2 trillion to modernize its nuclear arsenal. Everybody's going that direction. And they're seeing it as more and more feasible. It can be used. Admiral Charles Richard, the head of the U.S. Strategic Command, has been warning about this, saying that there is a real chance of nuclear weapons being used in the immediate future. And so I, I think we're on an insane path toward this kind of nuclear confrontation. Nobody wants it. Nobody's planning on it. Nobody really believes they can win it, well, except in the short run. You know, uh, there's allegations, although we haven't proven it, that Russia has this uh, policy of first use of tactical nuclear weapons to show its seriousness in the hopes that the other side is going to back down. Uh, we don't know if they re that's really their doctrine, but it's been alleged that that's the case. I just think we're getting closer and closer. Uh, the, the countries say that they will only use it if it's an existential threat. Well, how do you define an existential threat if you're Russia? If Russia actually would get defeated in Ukraine, which is not about to happen, but the U.S. policymakers have said that both that if Russia is desperate, they would use nuclear weapons and that their goal is to make Russia desperate. In a sense, they're saying that they would like to provoke a nuclear nuclear war, the risk of nuclear war. You know, we've known for decades this is insane. Since the 1980s, we've understood the threat of nuclear winter. And it doesn't take much, right? The, the latest estimate is that a Limited nuclear exchange between India and Pakistan, which 100 nuclear Hiroshima-sized nuclear weapons are used, which send 10 million tons of soot and uh, dust and debris into the stratosphere, block the sun's rays from hitting the earth, and that would lead to 2 billion deaths. That's 100 Hiroshima-sized nuclear weapons. We've got 13,000-plus nuclear weapons, most between 8 and 80 times as powerful. 
as the Hiroshima bomb. So as a species, back in 1929, Freud wrote a great book, Civilization is Discontents. And he talks about the death instinct. As a species, we seem to have a struggle between our life instinct and our death instinct. And that's why war is no longer a viable option in the nuclear age, and especially between nuclear armed powers and their proxies, as this one is. Larry, you were a, a high official in the Bush administration during the time period when the U.S. withdrew from nuclear uh, arms control treaties, and uh, that that process has only continued since then. Uh, what what were you? What was your thought at the time? And you know, did, were you and your boss Colin Powell were you coming at this from a different position than the neoconservatives and others who were? perhaps more responsible for the uh, abrogation of these treaties or the, you know, the allowing them to lapse and so on. I mean, what was your take on this at the time? Well, let me add a couple of points to what Peter said in addition, uh, and then I'll, I'll try to address your question. One, um, I'm not just worried about people like Kagan at Brookings who says we're all too timid and we should stand up even though he has nuclear weapons and so forth. Um, and other people like that, and generals who now are talking talking liberally about the utility of the new weapons on the battlefield, if not the ones we have right now, the ones we're going to develop under this $2 trillion program. And then the other thing is there are other people out there. Um, I go back to Bob Corker's uh, last few days in the Senate when he was chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and you had at that time, and you could see the surprise on Corker's face when these statements were made. Um, Reich, the senator from Idaho, who is now the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, actually made a statement, and I, you should go back and read it. It's going to go down in history, I think. Uh, the statement, in essence, says that he doesn't believe the president of the United States should be prohibited from first use of a nuclear weapon and that he should not have to consult if time is a, is a necessity. He shouldn't even have to consult with a man who was saying this in the Congress of the United States. He should just go ahead and do it. Well, there's no doubt in my mind that one of the reasons the Chinese changed Mao's long-term nuclear policy, Mao thought nuclear weapons were stupid, and he only wanted enough for deterrence. As Peter said, he never had much more than uh, 150, 200 weapons. It changed China's mind because they said, well, we've got to be able to ride out a first strike and respond. And the only way we can do that is if we have a whole lot more weapons and a whole lot more modernized weapons, MERV warheads and such, megatonny out of this world. Um, so we forced this, really. And how did we do it? We started in my administration uh, with the abandonment of the ABM Treaty, the Anti-Ballistic Missile Treaty, essentially so we could build 80 to $100 billion, I don't know what the figure is now, it's probably double that, Lockheed would have made sure, and all its subcontractors like Raytheon, uh, of missile defense, which, as Bill Perry has pointed out, the only, I think, the only engineer ever to be Secretary of Defense, it's nonsense because you are not going to hit a speeding bullet with a speeding bullet with any kind of fidelity that means you should spend this kind of money. But we went ahead and did it anyway because the military industrial complex was going to make a heck of a lot of money, has made a heck of a lot of money out of ballistic missile defense. 
And then we weighed in, we being Powell and others in the administration who had some sanity, in my view, and we negotiated the Moscow Treaty um, to fill in, Powell thought, for that gap we just created with the ABM Treaty. And the Moscow Treaty was what essentially was going to take us, it's only a couple of pages, a very simple treaty, was going to take us from what we had started out with when the Soviet Union collapsed, about 30,000 or so warheads on each side, delivery vehicles similarly. And we were going to take it down to roughly 2,200, maybe even lower. And the Moscow Treaty said, okay, we're going to take it down to the range of 1,200 to 2,200. We're going to keep on doing this. And oh, by the way, the United States is going to help Russia destroy its weapons, which we were doing. Um, and then this ABM treaty business put Putin on, Putin on the qui vive, and all of a sudden uh, we go through a progression of treaty abandonments leading up to the only treaty we'd ever negotiated that actually eliminated a whole class of nuclear weapons, the INF treaty, and we get out of it. Russia has followed suit, and it, it, it's inconsequential as to who started it. I think in most cases we started it, and we certainly started it with the abandonment of the ABM treaty. Um, open skies is gone. I think New Start is probably gone. The only really meaningful arms control in the nuclear weapons business we have left, because look at what we're doing to Putin now. We're using Ukraine. We don't give a hang about Ukraine. All we're using Ukraine for is to effect regime change in Moscow. And some of those people that are around Biden and on the outside, like Kagan, want to clear that flank so that it can then go after China. And Biden seemed to give that some impetus the other day when he said strategic clarity now. And the State Department even changed its website to reflect strategic clarity vis-a-vis Taiwan, not strategic ambiguity, which has been working for some three plus decades. As Peter said, we're in some dicey water here now with uh, modernization, with money being spent. Pakistan, I was told, is building 10 tactical types every month. Um, Modi is eradicating Muslims as fast as he can in India. And I heard a rumor the other day he'd like to do that to Pakistan, too. In 2002, we came as close to a nuclear exchange as as we've come in in my lifetime, really. And most Americans don't realize this. We literally flooded Delhi and Islamabad, General Musharraf and others, overnight trying to convince them that they needed to back down and stop what they were doing, the posturing they were doing. They didn't even have permission at, permissive action locks on their weapons. So that was one thing we provided them. They didn't have an escalation and a de-escalation theory, the kind of rich theory that we got during the Cold War. Um, so we tried to impart some of that to them. But it's a very dangerous situation there, as Peter just pointed out. So, yeah, I agree with Peter. Uh, I agree with the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. We're closer than we've been since weapons were invented. Uh, and I totally agree with Larry on this. Um, you know, and I'm thinking back to American leaders and and, and and Trump. You know, Aaron, you were with me in Hiroshima, and the A bomb museum in Hiroshima used to have a, a display that I would write down the same number every, every time I saw it. That by 1985, the world had accumulated the equivalent of 1.47 million. Hiroshima bombs. Now, I just think of the insanity of that. How many times do we have to be able to kill everybody on the planet before we're satisfied? But there's some people who are never satisfied. And, and as Larry knows, some of these war planners, uh, uh, I have a Kagan story for you in a minute, but when Trump found out that the U.S. 
it was found, figured out how much we have reduced the size of our nuclear arsenal. Trump called for a tenfold increase in our number of nuclear weapons. That's when Rex Tillerson, Secretary of State, called him an absolute fucking moron. You know, and, you know, Trump, when he, he said, what's the point of having nuclear weapons if we can't use them? To a sane person, that means let's get rid of our nuclear weapons. To Trump, it was make them more usable. And in the 2018 Nuclear Posture Review, he begins to do exactly that. Two new kinds of smaller, more usable nuclear weapons. We had hoped that when Biden came in there, he was going to revert to some sanity on this, give up first use, and make some other cuts, arms control agreements. He's gone just the opposite direction. On Asia, on China, he's doubled down on Trump's trade war. He's uh, sanctions, tariffs, uh, confrontation. Uh, And uh, on Russia, we see what's going on. Biden and the people around him said that they believed in American exceptionalism. They wanted the U.S. to become the unvarnished leader of the of the world again. And he and, and Blinken and Sullivan and the other people in the National Security Council shared that vision. And they're using this Ukraine situation to try to make that happen. But they're not content with just diminishing Russia. Biden's trip, as Larry said, to Seoul and Tokyo was a way to rally forces in Asia to oppose China, this containment policy toward China, which goes back quite some ways. But it was 2011 that Hillary Clinton announced the Asia pivot. And who were, his advi- who were her advisors? And who was in that administration? We're talking about Blinken and, and Sullivan and Campbell and the whole crew that's in there again. Uh, so very, very hawkish people around Biden. He's got 16 top advisors from the Center for a New American Security. These are the hawks. Michelle Flournoy didn't make it in there. Maybe she was too egregious, but everybody else from the CNAS is in there and they're advising him and pushing him and goading him. And Biden has some better instincts at times, but he's certainly not acting on on his better instincts right now. It seems like the whole U.S. foreign policy uh, community is, uh, I mean, I just saw Matt Duss was on Twitter. Uh, he's the guy who was Bernie Sanders' advisor, uh, foreign policy guy. He's like considered the token progressive guy. And he was chastising uh, Kissinger for being insufficiently uh, you know, hawkish on the Ukraine situation. These guys, uh, it seems like it's, a, it's like a cult, uh, a death cult. And... I don't even think I don't know how much of an exaggeration that is, because I don't think that your average crazy cult is as uh, puts, you know, puts the world at risk with their uh, their dogma or or whatever. I haven't seen anything. Even the Iraq war, I don't recall, maybe because there's more social media. I don't recall the propaganda being so uh, heavy, heavy handed and so on. Um, I mean, uh, Larry Wilkerson, what do you think about the way the media has created this this climate where the they don't seem to be giving the uh, leaders much room to even negotiate based on the narratives that they're promoting? And the fact that some of these things are just lot, huge lies of omission, like the big lie, especially about the birth of the Ukrainian regime 
back in 2014 that this was like a, a, a democratic uprising. And it's they've been caught red handed talking on tape about this. And yet we're just told, no, that that didn't happen. I mean, I, I can't recall the propaganda being so over the top and, and so full of like important disinformation at the same time that they're talking about how they have to stop all disinformation. I mean, is this, is this a new level of um, sort of uh, prevailing craziness or, or what, what, what's your take on it? It certainly is from my perspective. I, I've seen appearing on mainstream media. Uh, I told one producer two days ago, I guess it was, uh, actually I told two, two, two days ago, Sorry, you guys are shills for the government. You're propagandists for the government. That's all you are. You haven't had, as far as I'm concerned, and I'm not going to pretend I've watched every show you've aired, but you haven't had an accurate portrayal of the battlefield, for example, in Ukraine and around Ukraine since the thing started. You exaggerate. Um, This morning I was listening to someone who has a level head about this, military guy, former, and he was saying, do you know that in the American media, the casualty counts for both sides, Russia and Ukraine, have gone from 3,000, 3,000, 4,000 to 100,000? And they range anywhere in between, depending on the show you're watching. This is preposterous. This isn't reporting. This isn't journalism. This is propaganda. And it's propaganda for London, if it's coming from London, from Moscow, if it's coming from Moscow, Washington, if it's coming from Moscow. So I don't know how the American people do it uh, other than watching something like this, you know, alternative media or whatever we're calling it. Um, it's impossible to get the truth about this battlefield. And I know why, because no one wants anyone to have the truth. And your point about Ukraine being a democracy, my God, I was there when I had to literally babysit the guy whose face was so messed up, apparently by Moscow, I think it was Yatushinko. Um, this is the most corrupt government in the world that there are Jeffersonian Democrats or even Democrats is preposterous. Yes, I have pain for people, women and children and so forth, dying on the battlefield from either side. But it's preposterous to say we're defending democracy. And it's preposterous to say we haven't been there since 2004, at least, with the CIA and old motorcycle riding General Breedlove going into Ukraine and taking everything from arms to candy and popsicles. Um, th- this is incredible. We've been doing this at least since 2004. Same thing we did in Caracas and failed. Same thing we did in Damascus and failed. Same thing that we did in Baghdad and failed. I mean, the CIA, as John Kennedy said, should be broken up and scattered to the four winds. They haven't done anything right in 30 years, and they've done a lot bad. And some of these things they've been doing in the last few years are particularly bad. And I even wonder sometimes that the president of the United States, even though he may have signed a finding such as it is that approves the action, even knows what's happening down at the pointy end of the spear. For example, in Syria, when you have Marines shooting at CIA and CIA shooting at Marines, both allied with Al Qaeda operatives to go after ISIS. Now, that's a concoction for disaster. But that's the CIA. That's the kind of thing they do. That's their reputation in the world. And it's also pretty well earned in the world. But Larry, they've become our heroes. Yes. Uh, You see how many former CIA and unknown current CIA are constantly on CNN and MSNBC and Fox, former admirals, former generals, former intelligence people and in-house experts. 
And they've learned to be diverse. You notice they're putting females in front of the TV cameras now, too. Yeah. <laughs> I saw one the other day. Like Ukrainian. Yeah. These attractive young Ukrainian female members of parliament yeah. are on constantly also. Well, Lieutenant uh, Colonel Vindman is one of the most powerful voices out there with regards. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and, you know, it's my frustration also. I did a show this morning and I got, they were reading off my AU bio. And it said that I, I do media commentary all over the world and in the United States. And I had to correct him, you know, because I don't do United States anymore. I don't get asked by the United States. Larry turned them down. I would love to try to get onto American mainstream media. I still do Russian media, some, not like before. I think I did 75 shows in the three months leading up to the invasion on Russian TV, uh, urging Putin to pull back the troops, declare victory and negotiate. Uh, but it's very, very frustrating. There is not a single dissenting voice on mainstream American media, not a voice of clarity. No, nobody is even going to talk, tell the truth about what's going on. Uh, Katrina Vandenhoevel had a column in the Washington Post the other day, and she quoted Matt Taibbi, who said American media is an intellectual no-fly zone. And I like that wording because it's really totally brain dead uh, and also sanctimonious uh, and suffering so much for the Ukrainians that they want to keep them fighting and keep them dying. Uh, but but the myths that they're perpetuating are, are dangerous. This idea that the Ukrainians are winning, that they can win, that the Russians are losing, I mean, the Russian military has not distinguished itself, certainly, but they are, we know what's going on now in the Donbass. They've almost, they've got 95% of Luhansk. Uh, they're making very substantial gains. A after they took Mariupol, I kept saying, this is Putin's opportunity to declare victory and, right. and have a ceasefire. The Italians came up with a four-point plan that to me seems pretty reasonable, at least the basis for negotiating. Uh, and it's not everybody is like the U.S. and Britain. And there's a lot of, uh, there are a lot of people in the EU and NATO who don't want to see this can go on and don't want to, aren't willing to fight to the last Ukrainian in order to reestablish American hegemony. And the other thing that really troubles me, uh, I know the Finns pretty well. I don't know the Swedes quite as well, but the, the Finns I've been trained trained with and other things. This is tragic that they've given up their historic position of neutrality. Very powerful uh, voice in Europe in that position and a very, very wise situation for them. Geopolitically, geostrategically wise thing for them to do. And now to join NATO and to be cheered cheered for coming into NATO with Montenegro, the automobile theft capital of the world, for example. They're in, they're in NATO now. I, I think they're going to regret this decision down the road, majorly. Sweden, one of my close friends, is one of the leading defense analysts and an expert on the United States. And she wrote a piece in a leading Swedish newspaper 
urging the Swedes not to join NATO. She got so much hate mail, so much threats, so much, such ugliness that she had never encountered before in her entire life. She was in tears for days. She was devastated by the response. And so you've got this kind of group think and herd mentality now, although it's starting to break. I was at a conference last week in Cologne in Germany, uh, and maybe this was a, a, a unique group. It was not a peace conference. It was a scholarly conference, but everybody was very ambivalent. There was none of that flag waving, oh, great, we've got to continue this war, send all this lethal aid to, to Ukraine. It was everybody was much more ambivalent. They all condemned them the Russian invasion, but they were not wanting to go along with the re, with the militarization that's going on inside Germany. Vast increases in military spending, and we know much of the world is not buying into this. You look at India, China, Mexico, uh, Indonesia. You go down the list. Latin America. Most countries do not want to support the U.S. sanctions against Russia, and it's partly because. They see the U.S. as being hypocritical. They know that. You look at somebody like Blinken, supported the invasion of Afghanistan, supported the invasion of Iraq, supported the invasion of Libya, supported bombing in Syria. And now he's the voice of, you know, honor and dignity and appalled by the Russian invasion. Well, I'm appalled by the Russian invasion, too. But, I, you know, as a critic of all these wars, not just simply using this to reassert American domination. The other, other thing that's happening, too, that uh, a lot of people have not realized and has only been very briefly touched on in our media is we have a real problem right now because of Ukraine and Russia and others involved in this, like uh, Belarus, um, with food. Um, we're, we're talking about, I think I read Lebanon had roughly, before he invaded, Lebanon had roughly... 51% of its wheat coming from Ukraine. Um, a lot of the uh, tier countries, the top tier countries in uh, Africa, North Africa, from uh, Morocco all the way over to Egypt, were getting a considerable amount too. Um, They're already being hit. The global south is already being hit harder with the initial impact of climate change from aridity to uh, flooding to heat and so forth. Um, Syria, if you look at Syria and you look at the civil war, one of the reasons for that war was because of three failed crops in a row. And the third time around, they had the worst drought in 1,200 years in Syria. Now, I don't even know how you go back other than geologically to check 1,200 years. But they had farmers who were really angry because they had three years in a row with failed crops. This is going to increase. It's not going to get better. It's going to get worse. And this is just exacerbating and Larry, in, in uh, Syria, as you're talking about, the, the farmers went broke and they flooded the cities and they didn't have jobs. But but there was still very little opposition toward the Assad regime. I went back and I started reading the, the articles during the Arab Spring. Newsweek, Time and the others were all saying there's not going to be any uprising in Syria. There's no discontent in Syria focused on the blaming the government. Uh, and the United States, as you know, Larry, we, we began Operation Timber Sycamore, yep. and we helped create the opposition in Syria. Yeah. As did Bandar, Bandar and the Saudis. They were there, too. Yep. Yeah. Let's get rid of Assad. Yeah. Yep. 
And that goes back to like 2007, at least Seymour Hirsch, who always has these high placed sources. He wrote an article in the New Yorker called the redirection where he quotes somebody who was talking about Bandar and Bandar saying, Oh, don't worry about it. Yeah, it's Al Qaeda, but we can make sure that they're throwing their bombs in the right direction at Hezbollah, at Syria. And uh, this is, this ends up being, this is like Jake Sullivan himself. This is one of the WikiLeaks things. He said, Al-Qaeda is on our side in Syria. That's like almost a direct quote if it's not a direct quote. And, and in Ukraine, I mean, they want to deny it. And I'm not saying Ukraine is full stop a Nazi country, but the Nazis were a big asset for us over there. There's even video of one of these right sector guys talking about bragging about Maidan, saying that, yeah, they were there and they killed people. And they, the one quote that he even says at one point was, if we hadn't been there, it would have turned into a gay pride parade. Okay, so, you know, typical uh, class from the, you know, the Nazi sector. But this is this ends up being how we, you know, we take advantage of whatever there is on the ground. And often that means like the worst elements around. And then we we deny it. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this. It's it's come up recently, or I, I came across it recently. I don't know how, but it was uh, a, an article in May of 2014 by John Pilger, and he wrote, Having masterminded the coup in February against the democratically elected government in Kiev, Washington's planned seizure of Russia's historic, legitimate warm water naval, naval base in Crimea failed. The Russians defended themselves as they have against every threat and invasion for almost a century. Um, and then he says, uh, NATO's encirclement has accelerated along with the U.S. orchestrated attacks on ethnic Russians in Ukraine. If Putin can be provoked into coming to their aid, his preordained pariah role will justify a NATO-run guerrilla war that is likely to spill into Russia itself. So Pilger, like Mearsheimer, really called this almost like as, as it was going on. And yet this is this also has been memory hold. So I, I guess a question I could throw to either of you is, is was the U is the US trying was the US trying in part to if you can't even let's say you can't have regime change in Russia, you know, a debacle there like an Afghanistan style debacle that would, you know, contribute to the demise of the Soviet Union, but you could at least make them a pariah and then sort of recreate the dynamic of the Cold War where the this uh, this you know China Russia block isn't trading with people maybe they're hoping China will attack Taiwan too so that they can kind of reconstruct a sort of two Cold War world order again or I mean what these are so they so obviously were provoking Russia but what was their what was the actual goal here for the for the U S well, if you look at some of the people who are influencing this national security decision making process. Um, you have to look all the way from Exxon Mobil over to uh, Iowa's farmers. I mean, there are lots of domestic interests in this, and one of the most powerful domestic interests is to get Putin out of the oil and gas business, or at least attenuate his ability to operate in it in a big way. That gives, that does several things for Washington. It gets Mohammed bin Salman back in the camp a little bit, um, and it eliminates a real competitor. Um, if you're going to eliminate him permanently, you would at least eliminate him for a while. And there's a recognition coming. I even see it in Saudi Arabia's oil ministry now that the age of oil is done. Um, they want to get all the oil they can out of the ground and pump it. They want to get it out economically. They can get it out for 3 or $4 a barrel still. They want to get all of that out. They don't want to have any stranded assets, as it were. They want to sell all of that. 
Well, it's hard to do when you've got other people doing this in the market with you. So you eliminate the other people in the market. And look at the IPCC head from, um, uh, I believe it was the one from Ukraine, the one from Russia, right after the 28 February meeting and the report coming out, which was, if you haven't read it, really dismal especially if you go to the part that everyone didn't have to approve. Everyone has to approve the sort of executive summary. The scientists get to write the body of the report. You go into the technical section of the body of that report and you see we're going to live in a world you don't want to live in and might not be able to live in by 2050. And so this this uh, Russian said, condemn the invasion. And then the IPCC head from Ukraine said, this is ridiculous. Why are we doing this? We're fighting over fossil fuels. They're killing us. And she was right. That's part of the motivation. Uh, Another part of the motivation is what I said earlier. We've got this crazy idea that comes all the way back from Brzezinski. And you could take it all the way back as John John Mearsheimer will tell you. And look at the hits he gets on YouTube. Where are these Americans who are giving him 5 million hits on YouTube? Where are they? Are they writing letters to their senators and congressmen? Because obviously they think John's on to something. He doesn't have a low audience on a YouTube episode. Um, so clearly he's got a message that's resonating with someone. But he's, he's saying what we're saying, too, that this is stupid. But we understand why it's happening because there are so many special interests that are profiting from it. I just read a a report from one of the largest investment funds on the globe and their advice to people with regard to investing in defense contractors. It's 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 so obvious. This is what they're doing. And they don't want to stop. They don't want to stop. They're buying back their own stock shares. They're buying them back so they can plunge the price up, give their shareholders more dividend and make their stock better. They, They want this to go on forever. They want it to go on forever. They, you know, they don't care if Putin falls. Many of them, the oil people, of course, do. They don't care if there's a regime change. And, and if we take on China, too, that's even better for business. That's even better. I just wonder if this is if they have miscalculated. I mean, I, I actually I won't say I wonder. I think that they have miscalculated and that I wonder if, about the leadership at the top, if they even necessarily recognize the real uh, nature of U.S. hegemony and the the fact that they have created a artificial but very powerful system with this dollar regime that really gives the U.S. Rumpelstiltskin power to create dollars that everyone has to accept as being good as gold, and that they may be hastening the creation of a parallel system because when people in the global South are not on board with the U- the U.S. propaganda narrative about Ukraine. I think some this must come in part from the long history of colonialism and exploitation, and then the current dollar system of really, which really functions as neo-colonialism in many ways. I mean, is the U.S. by with its sort of thuggishness and the the sanctions and the stealing of assets? They did this to Venezuela too with Venezuela's gold. I think it was Britain that stole this. I mean. They're also fostering import substitute industrialization in Russia, which, although neoliberal economists say that's a bad thing, I don't think that it actually is. It's what Japan did to become, it's what the U.S. did to develop as an economic power with like Alexander Hamilton, his plan. I mean, this is, do the people are running things know what they're doing? And is this going to change the world order? In the, in the- yeah, we're actually forcing Russia to be more self-reliant <laughs> with our sanctions. 
was reading an article on that the other day. It was stunning what we're doing. These sanctions are not precise instruments. It's also stunning what we're doing to our own people. I I had to get someone to get in touch with Gina Raimondo the other day, the Department of Commerce Secretary, on an issue that uh, one of my friends is just apoplectic about. We have whole fields of solar arrays all across the East Coast and in the Midwest ready to mount their panels. People have invested millions of dollars in these solar arrays, and we can't buy the panels. You know why we can't buy the panels? U.S. sanctions <laughs> and tariffs. It's it's insane. It's absolutely insane what we're doing. There's There's no circumspection to it. There's no wisdom to it. It's just... Our whole foreign policy is war and sanctions, sanctions and war. And it's a blunderbuss, and it's going to haunt us into the future, I think, badly. We're we're sanctioning one-third of the world right now. And, you know, that's why there's so much move toward de-dollarization. It's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to happen overnight. But you look with the – when Trump – pulled out of the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal, and then try to block everybody else from having any trade relations with Iran. The Europeans were looking for financial mechanisms to be able to do that outside of the dollar system. They weren't able, they didn't succeed for the most part, but this is just growing at this point. You know, and I I see, Larry's talking about the economics of it and the defense contractors. I also see this whole trend in terms of the geopolitics of it. And I, I go back to Charles Krauthammer in 1990, when he said after the Soviet Union was in the process of collapsing, that this is America's unipolar moment, that nobody can challenge us anywhere, even in any region. Uh, and he said it's going to last 30 or 40 years. And then, with the, then, but then in, 19, in 1992, 93, we had the defense planning guidance, and that, that fleshes out even more in terms of American hegemony and, and the idea that we're not going to allow anybody to rise up in any region who can challenge us. And then in 2002, after the invasion of Afghanistan, Proudhammer revisits it. And he says, I made a mistake in 1990. It's not America's unipolar moment. It's the unipolar era. It's going to last indefinitely. And that was their fantasy until things fell apart in Afghanistan and fell apart in Iraq. And in 2006, Krauthammer admits, well, I overestimated it, and the unipolar era is not happening, and the unipolar moment is, is, is over. But we had that period between 1990 and 2005 or six, in which we did have that kind of unipolar domination. And I think that's what they fantasize they're going to get back to. And we see Russia being weakened, that's what we're saying, in terms of Ukraine, and we want to figure out how to do the same thing to China. It's not going to work, right? There's another alternative. It's not the Kagan uh, Council on Foreign Relations, uh, Atlantic Council, CNAS vision. It's a way of figuring out how we have a cooperative world that deals with uh, global warming, deals with pandemics, deals with the nuclear threat, deals with the gap between rich and poor globally. And, on, and so there are different visions, but unfortunately, there is nobody out there in a leadership position who's speaking for the planet, right? Biden wants to make America great again. Russia, Putin wants to make Russia great again. 
Xi wants to make China great again. Modi wants to make India great again. Uh, but there's nobody speaking for the planet. You know, and that's what we're trying to do in our own limited ways. Uh, and that's what the people of the world hopefully are going to want. But we see 60% of the population in South Korea says they want South Korea to have nuclear weapons. Uh, Abe, former Japanese prime minister, is urging the U.S. to house nuclear weapons in Japan. And we have a tremendous increase in military spending all across the globe right now. We're going the opposite direction uh, and an insane direction and a dangerous direction. Larry Wilkerson, you teach political science courses at William and Mary. Uh, I assume that you're still doing so. How do you uh, speak to students about the issue that I know this must come up with you, but the idea of international law versus this liberal rules-based international order that they call it. I mean, how the, the idea of coming up with some sort of better solution for the world uh, based on, you know, the observance of international law and the way that the U.S. goes is the most egregious violator of, of any attempt at this, but also obscures it with language. Like when you say rules-based international order, I think people would assume that means international law, but it actually means something totally different. Uh, how is it that you think about these things, uh, in, especially in the context of something like the Ukraine war? Well, most of my students would respond to remarks like that with the rules are made in Washington. <laughs> they know that. They're not naive. Um, their greatest uh, pain, I think, besides the home mortgage they're going to leave with on their backs for their college education, if they're not rich and wealthy, um, their greatest concern is what to do about it. Um, I had one young lady in a seminar as I was giving my opening remarks. It was the very first of 14 three-hour seminars. And I was giving my opening remarks describing the deterioration of the national security state and the apparatus that uh, made decisions in it and so forth. She just raised her hand. And I said, yeah, do you have a comment? She said, I do. You know, I've never lived in a country that wasn't at war. And, you know, a little math. Hey. She's 19. <laughs> it was 2015. Yeah, she's right. She's never lived in a country that wasn't war. That's what we are. We're a warfare state. Um, they're angry for the most part, but they also know they need to go out. And let me tell you who need to go out and get a job. Who's recruiting most vociferously, most potently, most powerful on the College of William Mary campus and on probably half the campuses in this country, if not more? The defense contractors and their associated people, whether it's Booz Allen Hamilton and the Beltway Bandits, or whether it's the security branch of Deloitte Touche China or Deloitte Touche America or whatever, these are the people that are going to offer them their jobs. So when I get somebody to go to DMA or to CIA or to NSA or whatever, we usually have an office session where I try to tell them, you know, as best I can, hey, look, you're going to be a spy. You're going to be a rebel. You're going to be somebody who actually understands the process before you get there. You need to make changes. Be careful because you'll get, you know, you'll get fired. Be careful. Do it carefully. I like to think I've seeded the bureaucracy over the past 16 years. <laughs> and I'm sure Peter feels the same way. <laughs> but it's frustrating because our students are very alert to climate change. They know they study global warming. They're very sensitive to gender issues, racial issues, and they're not thinking about foreign policy. 
and they're not thinking about nuclear war. And I've got one of the existential threats on their radar, but they don't have the other existential threats right now. Uh, and, you know, Larry and I, I mean, I, I, I know I get frustrated. I'm trying to reach them. And once you got their attention, they're very, uh, you know, they care about this and they're very interested and they want to act. But the, the environment on campuses, I went to school, college in the late 60s, and nobody from a defense contractor would set foot on campus. I remember Dow Chemical wanted a recruit at Rutgers when I was an undergraduate. So the administration, to try to avoid big protests, uh, presented a debate between the dean of the Rutgers Business School and the public relations director for Dow Chemical and, and me and another student. Uh, and there was still a huge protest. But at least the guy that got out of there <laughs> alive. Uh, but you know that you could not. The administration could not send a government official to campuses in the United States in the late sixties without causing a riot. Uh, the the environment is very very different now. And uh, you know we we we've got to. Larry and I were in a meeting yesterday where we were thinking about how do we spark a. A, a real movement against the military industrial complex and defense spending and war making. Uh, and I had to cut out early, so I don't know if they came up with any brilliant solutions, but uh, it's a real problem that people are, are just not paying the kind of attention that I wish they were at this point. Your point, Peter, about the public being very different is a is a very powerful one. I, I can't figure it out either. Why were they so the way they were? Was it the draft, the threat of the draft? Uh, they were so anti-war. They were so willing to take to the streets, so willing to even risk their lives like at Kent State. And, um, but they aren't today. They aren't. Yeah. And, and Every I, now and then. I think, Larry, I think the draft was a factor, but not nearly as big a factor as people think it was. First of all, mm -hmm. a lot of the participants were women. Uh, secondly, I mean, my friends and I, none of us believed we were going to go into the military. We were going to get drafted. You know, we, if you're a college student, you knew you could get out. It was the yes. working class kids who were going there without high school educations for the most part. And the college kids were, were not really that personally concerned about the draft. And they, everybody I know who wanted to get out did get out. We all had, had doctors, you know, records and, and other things. And, and so it was a different kind of motivation. It was people were very alert to that. The thought after World War II that our country, you know, when McNamara came into my class a few years ago, he said that he accepts that 3.8 million Vietnamese died in the war. 3.8 million. And I, go, I, my, I asked my students, they say they've all been to the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And the Vietnam Memorial Walls is two walls, 492 feet long, with the names of 58,280 Americans who died. The message is the tragedy of the Vietnam War was that 58,280 Americans died. But I say to them, if we added the names of 3.8 million Vietnamese, a million Cambodians, Laotians, South Koreans, Thais, everybody else who died, Brits, Aussies, it, it would be more than eight miles long. And that would be a fitting memorial to the Vietnam War, you know. But we don't learn those lessons, you know, and no. we don't study our history. We don't learn from the past. It was Jimmy Carter 
who said we're the most warlike country in history. I think he said that out of all our 200 plus years as a country, we've had 16 years at which we've been at peace. The uh, time I met with Obama in the Roosevelt Room uh, with General Paul Egan to be ostensibly thanked for our work, our work on the JCPOA. Um, he started off his conversation. John Kerry was sitting on the left of him, and I, Paul, and I couldn't under, couldn't couldn't figure out. We talked about it in the reception room afterwards. Was he talking to himself? Was he talking to us? Or was he talking to Kerry? He started out. His first words, I put them at the head of my syllabus the next semester. There's a bias in this town toward war. And then he spent 30 minutes telling us he didn't know what to do about it. <laughs> With Kerry sitting there looking sort of thunderstruck, because you may recall it that this was uh, the last year of his administration. Kerry was sort of out there, you know, hustling for ground troops in Syria. And so clearly the president was sending a signal to his next state, too. But what a powerful statement. I didn't think I'd ever hear a sitting American president say that. And he meant it. He meant it. He didn't know what to do about it. He'd also just dispatched Samantha Power to the United Nations to get her out of his hair because I think he thought she and Susan Rice got him into Libya, which was a disaster, which was clear from his conversation, too. So, um, you know. How do you get presidents to, at the beginning of their term, select people who will help them and and fight that? I don't know. That's a huge question for me. We, That's a, we see who the, each administration brings in. Yeah, Mark Carter with his trilateralists, or Reagan with his uh, what is it, the Center for Defense? I forget. Committee on the Present the Danger. Danger. You know, um, Bush with the Project for a New American Century, Biden with the Center for a New American Security, they surround themselves, and then they don't have any options, but they create the world in which they live, and uh, and function. Yeah, that's that's a that that's been the case uh, all throughout the cold, the post war era because Kennedy, John, JFK himself, uh, there were dozens of people in his administration who had previously been on the Rockefeller's fund uh, board, for example. And then other people, when he tried to get rid of them, uh, it, it may have caused problems up to and including his assassin, contributing to his assassination. He sends uh, Lyman Lemnitzer over to be the commander of NATO. I would guess that Kennedy didn't even know about Gladio and such. He sends Bill Har- uh, Har- Day- William Harvey to Rome, which was not, a safe place for William Harvey to be, if you know what was going on in Rome at the time. Uh, Nixon tried, sends Helms to Iran to be the ambassador, and that lead, he gets involved with like the Safari Club later, which is like the private substitute for the CIA in the seventies. Like you can't, you can't. They 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 don't. They apparently judge that they can't just get rid of these people, and even when they try to get rid of them, they can't. Uh, they can't do it in a safe way. It's like they're 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 really at risk from the whole the system. The, the president, you can almost feel sorry for presidents in, under these conditions. Kennedy learns. Larry was saying before, Kennedy talked about those you know CIA bastards, uh, Joint Chiefs, sons of bitches, and resisted. He was the one person who stood up, even during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He was often the only one in the room who wanted to avoid an invasion, uh, uh, and he stood up and. We don't know who ended up killing him, but there's a lot of suspicion that it was because of his resistance to 
going in in Cuba, is wanting to pull out of Vietnam, is wanting to end the Cold War. His American University commencement address in June 63, I still think the best presidential address of the 20th century. It was, you know, it was, it was visionary. visionary. Probably scared the warmongers to death, that speech. Yeah. And he, and he did it without any input from the CIA or the State Department, right? It was Norman Cousins and uh, Sorensen who largely wrote that speech for him. And he didn't want the CIA and State Department to even have any input at all. And that's just it. This, if he was Kennedy, I think, recognized that any programs he wanted to pursue was threatened by the structural, the overdetermining structural condition of the Cold War, and that at that point he decided to go for it. But he knew that it was risky to the point that he asked Frankenheimer to produce that Seven Days in May movie about a military coup that over, that attempts to overthrow a president who was going to negotiate a, a peace treaty with the Soviet Union. And the film doesn't come out in time. It comes out, they, they even shoot him from the White House, but it comes out after he's, he's dead. And, uh, you know, when Obama says those things, I worked for Obama. I, I tend to think that Obama would, tr- if Obama could do the right thing and it would not cost him anything politically or personally, he would, he would really do it. Uh, and that, that was kind of the tragic flaw of, of Obama, but the flaw without which he probably wouldn't have been elevated to that position. But, and so there is a lack of statesmanship in the world. Um, Peter, I, I want to push back just a little bit on something that you said. When you said there's no one saying anything about peace in the world, there were recent remarks from Xi Jinping. And, he, and I'm not saying that he's a John Kennedy character. I'm kind of agnostic about him, but he has uplifted the Chinese population in a way that is a, a historically amazing accomplishment in terms of taking, you know, help being part of this decades-long process of, of lifting you know, hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. And uh, part of this speech uh, contained these lines. Um, We need to uphold true multilateralism and firmly safeguard the international system with the UN at its core and the international order underpinned by international law. It's particularly important for major countries to lead by example in honoring equality, cooperation, good faith, and the rule of law and act in a way befitting their status. So that, that's rhetoric, and you can make of it what you will. But, it, at, you know, this is not – you're not hearing something like this from the U.S., and, you know, maybe this is going to contribute or haste – this sort of contrast will contribute to and hasten the uh, end of the unipolar moment. Uh, what do you think of the possibilities of a of a real multipolar world order coming about sooner than we think? You know, Xi Jinping worries me, frightens me. He's very, very – autocratic or authoritarian and dictatorial, uh, very easily threatened. Uh, he, you could say that China has not invaded anybody since 1979, and that's true. I don't think his policies are wise. Certainly the treatment of the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, certainly his crackdown on democracy in Hong Kong, massive surveillance, 300 million uh, surveillance cameras, uh, I mean, I look, I look at his policies in the South China Sea. I think they're self-defeating. I think there's enough wealth and resources in the South China Sea to be shared. But, but the nine-dash nine line and China, I think, is creating a lot of its own problems. I would love to see them resolve the Himalayan disputes with India. There's no reason. When I go on Indian TV, maybe Larry does this too, 
you know, they are so fiercely nationalistic and you say anything positive about China and they jump down your throat. I mean, there's no reason, there's no good reason for China not to be able to get along with its neighbors in the South China Sea better. That's what gives the U.S. the opening. That's why this new uh, Indo-Pacific development fund that the United States is trying to create has some resonance with those countries because they they don't want to be hostile to China, but they don't fully trust China. So China's done a lot of good things that you're saying in terms of economic development internally. The Belt and Road Initiative is certainly more positive than negative. Uh, the Asia Infrastructure Investment Bank, I think, is you know, on whole very positive. But uh, I, I, I think that a lot of their policies have put them in a position where they can't represent the vision that you were talking about, as Xi Jinping was stating there. And the wolf warrior diplomacy, I, I, I think that's not going to, that's going to backfire. What do you think, Professor Wilkerson, about the possibility of a, a, a sort of China with Russia as junior partner uh, led alternative to uh, the U.S. to the U.S. Uh, system, especially in terms of international trade and, and payments and such? Is this do you think that that China may be able to uh, help to usher in this sort of uh, change in the in the world order, or uh, are we headed for more years of of, U- of U.S. stumbling, sort of uh, uni- messy unipolarity? I think China's an enigma right now in many respects. Uh, I, I I take the positive points of the Base Road Initiative and what they're doing, all manifestations of it, the maritime part, the Central Asian part, the Southwest Asian part. They are lifting people up. And by and large, they don't put as onerous requirements on those people as we do. Um, and so we are just hypocrites when we go out there and accuse them of doing that sort of thing. There are some problems, as there always will be, with that kind of massive development effort. You know, they want to flood some people in there. They need Liebenschwam too. And so, and interestingly, I saw this paper the other day. The best place for them to get some Liebenschwam is up north in Siberia. And Putin's paying absolutely no attention to it. And there are four or 5,000 Chinese that go across the Amur and the other border areas every day. Many of them stay for six weeks, six months. They work there. They are developing Siberia. And they're moving gradually further and further north. The only thing he has out there in terms of a, bas- a bastion is really Vladivostok. Uh, the, the Chinese really kind of are working that place. There's not much he can do about it. Um, so I don't see them as being natural allies. I see them as, as being uh, uncomfortable allies. But we're making them comfortable. Our actions in Ukraine are telling Xi Jinping and Putin that they, they need a refuge and the refuge is one another. And together, they're pretty powerful. Um, he can sell most of his uh, petroleum products to China. And uh, you know, so can Iran, for that matter, which it is doing. And China's just ignoring all the sanctions and so forth. Um, we're doing the things we're doing, particularly with sanctions and such, to our ultimate long-term damage. No question about it. As Peter was saying, I mean, you probably poll 7 billion people today, 6 billion, whatever the UN is saying the world's population figures are. You'd get 50% of them saying the greatest threat to their future is the United States of America, not their local enemy. <laughs> what really stunned Powell is when we did that poll in Pakistan, and Pakistan didn't say India. They said the United States of America. 
<laughs> and you can say, well, we were having a tough time with them, the ISI and everything at that time. But still, it tells you something. This was out in the hustings that the polling was done. And the military did the polling. The military doesn't have much prejudice when it's polling like that. It's usually a pretty good poll. Um, so, you know, in South Korea, it's similar. You get under 35 and you find people who think we are a problem for their future. Um, this is not good for us. Uh, Kagan would say, no, I want everybody to fear us. I don't give a damn about love and respect or any of that crap. I want them to fear us. And so this is good. Let's have six billion people out there who hate us, with the exception maybe of the Christian national, you know, white people in Europe. Um, that's the way we're going. And that's a very dangerous path to try. We've been there before. We've been there before. Well, gentlemen, I think that we will wrap it up here. Uh, thank you both. Uh, so much for joining me. And uh, I really do appreciate this. I, I have great respect for the both of you. And uh, Peter, I'm hoping that we can one day take another of our trips somewhere, but we'll just have to see how things shake out here. And we also have to all hope that the world doesn't get blown up because that is another concern these days. So thank you both very much. Maybe Larry will join us in Hiroshima and Nagasaki this yeah. summer. One of my veteran, military veterans, student military veterans at William Mary just took off for Georgia. They're in Tbilisi now. I told him, I said, Chuck, stay safe. <laughs> All right. Thank you very much, gentlemen. Thank you. Take care. If you are a new American Exception listener, please consider subscribing on Patreon. We have lots of material that you cannot find anywhere else, offering deep dives into the dark side of the lawless U.S. empire. I want to thank Dana Chavaria for engineering the audio and Casey Moore for his artwork. Thanks also to Mock Orange for providing the music. Let's all keep chasing the light. Dead we come.